So um, just one thing to mention before I jump in today. Uh, next, next week in the, in the lounge on Sunday, there's going to be a little bit of a volunteer fair. Uh, so some folks at a booth. And if you want to know about more, uh, more about how to get uh, involved in grassroots at the volunteer level, there'll be lots of signups. As well as in two weeks' time, uh, on Thursday night, there's going to start up a group for the months of October and November. It's called an Alpha Group. And it's a video series that we're showing here um, every week on Thursday nights um, for people who uh, are exploring faith, who don't know what they think about God or don't know um, what they think about Christianity. It's the basics of Christianity. And so if you're exploring, if you, um, you know, aren't a believer and want to come ask some questions and be in a group of people who are exploring questions about the uh, basics of Christianity, or if you've been a believer for some time and you feel like you need a refresher, uh, you're welcome. Uh, there'll be sign-ups for that next week uh, in the lounge back there. And if you're wanting to help with that, if uh, you have a passion for uh, being in spaces with people who are asking honest and uh, vulnerable questions, expressing their doubts, working through that in a safe environment, uh, feel free to let me know and you're welcome to come join in. So with that being said, uh, Part of what we're doing here uh, as a church is uh, gathering as churches do on Sunday mornings and trying to um, take this space and this time for the next season. I don't know how long that's going to be, uh, maybe a year, maybe a little less, a little more, I don't know yet. Uh, but just to take a season to uh, talk about prayer, the life of prayer. It, the life of prayer can be such a difficult and challenging thing for so many reasons. And so I figured if I just stand up here 52 times and remind you that you should be praying, it'll work. That's my, that's my strategy. Well, it's a little bit more nuanced than that um, because there are so many obstacles to prayer. And when we talk about prayer, this cuts to the very heart of our experience as human beings um, in, our, in our wounds, in our brokenness, in our experience of different kinds of praying that we feel like, I don't think I want that. Um, so it's, it's a complex and mysterious and challenging thing to talk about. So we're going to give it some time um, to talk through. But ultimately, when we talk about prayer, we're talking about be becoming aware, um, turning our full attention, our bodies, our spirits, our emotions, our questions, our to-do lists, turning our full attention to the living God and becoming aware of him who's aware of us constantly, loving, learning to love him who loves us perfectly, and um, coming to know him who knows us better than we know ourselves. And that's the best way I can put it. And um, yeah, if, um, if you want to be enrolled in this school, uh, getting through some of the shallow forms of prayer, pushing away the obstacles, and making it into a life that's... Um, characterized by praying and, and being uh, aware of God, then keep on coming. It's going to take a full year or so to get through this. And if you're saying to yourself, Keith, I've been coming for three or four weeks and I haven't started praying yet. It's okay. I'm not expecting that. I mean, I'm eventually going to get into the nuts and bolts of prayer. We talk about the Lord's Prayer and following the Lord's Prayer as a pattern. We talk about other New Testament prayers, the, the ways to get the habit going in your life. There's lots of great strategies but, but I haven't even begun to get into that because there are a couple big major obstacles that even uh, prevent us from getting started. And that's where we've begun in the last few weeks here at Grassroots. 
Um, so if you've missed any of the sermons, I think this is number four of 50-something. Uh, if you've missed any of them, feel free to look at the website. They're all there um, and uh, get caught up. But we've been, um, we've been starting with these, a few kind of key thoughts as an introduction, these four weeks as an introduction. And today is the last of the introduction. Um, so um, ultimately, uh, as we become aware of God, as we come to love him and know him, I believe that the world can only become the place that it's meant to be. The world can only enter into sort of a new season of peace. The world can change only when men and women and children become aware of God and love him and learn to turn their attention to him. And then through that full attention, being transformed and then coming back into the world and learning what it is to give selfless love in every situation around us. And so this is me. We're talking about the the foundation of our faith. And my encouragement to you is, um, as we get through some of this, to stick with it. Keep going. And um, unlike our computer. Stick with it. Uh, Keep going. And... um, get enrolled in this school of prayer. Now, the first two things I've been mentioning that, that are non-starters, uh, if we come to prayer with arrogance and entitlement, these two characteristics of the human person, if we come to prayer, it just sort of goes nowhere. Partly because arrogance is this feeling that you are better than other people or you're, you're, you're high above another person. And entitlement is this deep sense that you deserve the best. And of course, at a level, that's true. Um, but there are ways to be entitled as a human being, which just trap us in sin and trap us in slavery, really. And if we come with arrogance and entitlement to prayer, it, God says, I'll begin working there. We can't even enter into the deep heart of God if these things are there. And um, I'm going to talk a little bit, I'm going to cap this off today. You know, the last couple times I've I talked about arrogance a couple weeks ago, entitlements last week. And today my hope is to give you a little sense more of what this kind of praying looks like and what the heart of prayer praying, the heart of God praying looks like. And the way that we're doing this all, these 50-some sermons, is uh, getting into the Psalms. Uh, The Psalms are Israel's prayer book. Uh, There's 150 of them. They're in the Old Testament. And they are... They are enough of them that capture pretty much every emotion in the human experience. And so um, part of my hope this whole year or so is that you would walk away with a a deep and perhaps a a new or for the first time love of the Psalms. They are such a great place to spend time. But today, as we get into it, we're going to talk about two Psalms. Psalm 136 and 137. Um, Two prayers right next to each other that give us the extremes of human emotion. One of them, um, elation and joy, Psalm 136, and Psalm 137, grief and anguish. So here's the beginning of, uh, or a few verses from each as we jump in today. It says, give thanks to the Lord. His love endures forever. He remembered us in our low estate and freed us from our enemies. He gives food to every creature, Give thanks to the God of heaven. His love endures forever. And we'll get more into that in a bit. Uh, But you get get a sense that this is a psalm that uh, is elated, that God has rescued us from dangers and from kings. But on the other end of the spectrum, and it's whoever put these psalms together knew what they were doing to show us the stark 
contrast. By the rivers of Babylon, we sat and wept when we remembered Zion, which is another name for Jerusalem, which had been destroyed. There, on the poplars, we hung our harps, for there our captors asked of us for songs. Our tormentors demanded songs of joy. Happy are those who seize your infants, O Babylon, and dash them against the rocks. And of course, this becomes one of the major sticking points for people who want to read the Bible and come to know the, the God of the Bible. Just happy are those who kill your infants on rocks. And, oh man, how do we stomach them? I gotta just sort of, before we get into this, I just gotta mention this in case this is a hangout for anyone. Um, that we, we, Christians see the, the scriptures as inspired that somehow God breathed on the authors and out came uh, some sort of truth. Uh, and in this instance, in the Psalms, there's, there's, there's a handful of Psalms that uh, cast curses on their enemies. Um, and we ask, is this what God wants? Is this, does this revealing of the heart of God, is he a vindictive, vengeful God who ha- is happy when babies die? Of course not. I mean, the fullest revelation of God is in Jesus. He says, forgive your enemies. Forgive those who persecute you. Um, so what is this? What's going on here? This is, uh, and as I've been talking about uh, prayer, this is a prayer that at its gut level is being raw and vulnerable and honest, and it's opening up and revealing just how vengeful and vindictive the human heart can be. And that kind of vengeance and vindictiveness is not God's heart. But God had this psalmist in here being honest and vulnerable just to reveal how far we can go. So no, this is not God's heart to dash our enemies' infants against the rocks. But God is saying, "Look, just look at how far we can go in our anger. And I'm going to get into this a little bit, and I think you'll you'll see where this is going here. Um, But... um, both prayers, Psalm 136 and 137, let free their emotions. They just let it out deeply. Both prayers express their neediness, God, neediness of God, and both prayers recognize God as the creator, the one who's in charge of the world. And so um, as we get into this, I thought this, this was interesting picture here. <laughs> Um, I wanted just to give a few more words about arrogant, entitled praying. And just to give a few more descriptors for you about what I mean here. Uh, Arrogant, entitled praying goes like this. If I've been good, I'm going to get some gifts. If I pray and ask for God's blessing, he'll give it to me. It's almost as if God is a God who cannot help but to choose me and bless me. This is an attitude. It's arrogant, entitled If I command him to act, to heal and deliver, and to bless, he'll do it. Because God owes me something. We might talk about this kind of prayer and praying with the words smug self-assurance. Lack of gratitude. Self-esteem, our deep self-esteem in this kind of way of being and praying um, comes from our sense of being entitled to something. I deserve special privileges or special treatment I deserve a children, a spouse, a job, a home, rest, purchasing, uh, excessive self-indulgence. And you can get the platitudes of prayer. Thank you, God, that I'm not like other people. I have it all together. 
Um, when you come across arrogant, entitled praying, it's like you, it's shallow prayer, shallow words that think of itself as very powerful, but you can see right through it. Um, God is reduced in this instance to someone who helps you get what you think you're already entitled to. Um, there's no emotion, no frailty, no neediness in this kind of praying. All that's left is empty words. And at worst, a person with this kind of um, grip on life, this controlling grip that's trying to control God and have God do whatever they would want, at worst, this turns into some sort of magical um, incantation. I'm going to say the right things and do the right things so I can make the God of the universe do exactly what I want. Um, there's no empathy, it's nasal gazing, navel gazing, and there's no gratitude involved. And I love this, I love this quote here. To the extent that we fall into an entitlement trap, we become more deserving in our own eyes, and God's grace gets less and less amazing in our estimation. A person with a good heart knows that this is not real. If you have a good heart and you've encountered this kind of prayer, you know to reject it. If you have a good heart and you think of, you've encountered a God who's a Santa Claus God, you, you instinctively know that you're, that's a false God. And so I think a lot of good people and a lot of good Christians who've grown up with a kind of Santa Claus God, who, who, who have um, realized that in reality, we don't always get what we want. And that righteous and good people sometimes suffer very badly. When they reject that God, the Santa Claus God, it's not like they're an atheist. They're just rejecting a, a false God, not the living God. That's not the way the living God works. And so you are left, we are left at a crossroads at this point, going, okay, if God's not a Santa Claus God, um, then who is he? I've met many people in this, in this spot, and they know they're not atheists. They know that they believe in God, but not the God that, not that God. And so we're left at a crossroads at that point. Um, and one of the roads leads further in and deeper into the heart of God, the living, true God. And one way does ultimately lead to atheism. Um, people who are walking away from God because they're not getting what they feel entitled to. Uh, bitterness, pride, and envy are part of that way. And the temptation is to say, okay, uh, if God doesn't work that way, I don't know who God is anymore. I don't know uh, why I should even pray, um, but I've got this. I don't need that. Um, and to me, uh, feeling like we don't need prayer, the life of prayer, we don't need to learn how to, to enter deeply into another way of being is like saying, well, fasting is good. Um, so I don't need to eat. You can, you, can be, you can be trying to be holy and fast and say, uh, you know, I'm going to sacrifice. But if, if, like, if, if you don't take in your food, if you don't take in your nourishment eventually, you're going to starve. And prayer is like our food. So uh, if you've rejected Santa Claus God, I'm going to say, good. I'm glad you have. I'm glad you've walked away from that God because that's not the living God. But if you're at a crossroads... Um, perhaps you've learned who God isn't, but yet you're still figuring out and learning who God is. And that's my invitation here as we're getting started. Um, and with prayer, 
from the life of prayer, wherever you're at, you may be where I'm describing, you may be somewhere else. Uh, the reality is, is you don't need to know any of the right words to begin. You don't need to know any of the right techniques. You don't need to know um, anything other than you want to give your emotions, your feelings, a steady flow of mixed motive, complaining, shallow prayers to the living God. It's all you need to know to get started. Um, you, have to, you have to give that constant sense of neediness to him. And you have to know how to be patient in the dark times when you can't see your way through. Don't freak out. Don't flail around. Stay still. And you're already into prayer. And uh, even the prayer, as we'll see here, I think Psalm 37 is a beautiful example of this. Even the prayer, God, I don't know how to pray. I don't even know if I want you. I don't know if I like you. That's a prayer. That's what I'm talking about. This is, this, is what we're, this is the way in, the way deeper. So let's look at these psalms a little more closely. Uh, one of them plants themselves, Psalm 37, 137, right in the middle of the most confusing grief that you can imagine. The other one, like I said, is in the, in the midst of this confident awareness that God has freed people in the past. Um, So we'll start with Psalm 136 to get into this a little further. This is a psalm that goes back and forth. Thanks, give thanks to the Lord, his love endures forever. Give thanks to the God of gods, his love endures forever. Give thanks to the Lord of lords, his love endures forever. It's a classic kind of formula, formulaic opening. God's the king of kings. If you think of the kings of the world, he's more king. If you think of the lords of the world, he's more lord. Think of the gods of the world, he's more God. And it goes back and forth. Give thanks to the Lord, his love endures forever. Give thanks to the God of God, his love endures forever. And on goes the kind of the rhythm of this kind of praying. Uh, to him who alone does great wonders, his love endures forever. Oh, it's so good so far, right? By his understanding, he made the stars. His love endures forever. Who spread out the earth upon the water, his love endures forever. And the psalmist turns their attention to creation, okay? I'm worshiping a God who's the king of kings and who's created this place. And this, like, their heart is, is a light. And sometimes I think we're afraid to pray like this because we're always looking for the other shoe to drop. If I just completely give myself over to God because... Um, um, life is going well and I'm, I can't imagine it going differently we're always kind of watching out when, when is life going to hit me like a train from the side um, and sometimes we miss out on those opportunities and part of being uh, a prayer in the, in the psalm tradition is to say when you are happy you can be happy and you're not having to look out over your shoulder let yourself be happy it, it lets every emotion out whatever it, it's feeling that's the kind of praying I'm talking about. Now it gets darker. To him who struck down the firstborn of Egypt, his love endures forever. And we reel. Wait a second. What is this? Um, the psalmist is being as honest as they can. The whole tradition of striking down the firstborn of Egypt is a rich tradition. It's the Passover of the Jewish people. And to get on the inside of that and to understand God's character in that way, we have to ultimately understand that in the, in the end, when all was said and done, he was willing to give up his firstborn. 
as a sacrifice to show just how deep his love was. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pass by this just, to, just for today to get deeper in. And brought Israel to safety. His love endures forever. Who killed mighty kings. His love endures forever. Psalm 136. It's ultimately full of joy, elation, victory, resolution, safety. Um, and it ends like this. He remembered our lowest state. Frees us from enemies. He gives food to every creature. Ultimately gives thanks to the God of heaven. So nestled right up against this elation comes... Psalm 137, grief, anger, vindictiveness, despair, dismay. By the rivers of Babylon we wept. I'm just going to go into some ancient history here. We're going to have to take a moment to, uh, what time we got? Okay, I've got time. We're going to have to go into some ancient history here to, to give you a good sense of what's going on. So stick with me. It's going to be good. So here we have, uh, we'll call him King Zedekiah. He's the 21st heir of King David. So about 586 BC, um, 586 years before Jesus came around, uh, about 400 years after David, the kingdom is in shambles. Um, There's at least four accounts of the story of when King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon comes in and completely destroys Jerusalem And the Psalm 137, by the rivers of Babylon we wept, is the aftermath of this destruction. And in the scriptures, you get uh, an account of this destruction in four places. You get the account of the destruction in 2 Kings, 2 Chronicles, the prophet Jeremiah, and the prophet Ezekiel. So it's coming from many places in the Old Testament. This one story of where Jerusalem is finally destroyed because of their sin. Now, the... When we talk about why God allowed the city of Jerusalem to be destroyed, he brings up a long litany of of reasons. They've worshipped other gods. My people have have worshipped idols. Um, And out of this comes, out of this this idolatrous worship comes the horrors of Israel's crimes. They robbed the poor. They did violence to foreigners. They did violence to the fatherless. To the widow, they shed innocent blood. These kings, these sons of David, were as wicked as they got in terms of what they were willing to do. And God saw this. He did not turn his eye. He says in Jeremiah 2.13, They have forsaken the spring of living water. God's the spring of living water. They've forsaken me, and they've dug cisterns of their own, broken cisterns, which cannot hold water. They've been confused and duped into the wrong kind of way of living. So Zedekiah comes along. He's the last in the line of kings. God saw his evil and the innocent blood that he shed. And ultimately, Nebuchadnezzar comes in from the north and sets up siege around Jerusalem. He comes in and he spends uh, two years encamping around there. Can you imagine that? 18 months encamped around the outside walls of Jerusalem. And the, the uh, strategy here is starvation and disease. No one can get in, no one can get out. And so the people, thousands and thousands and thousands of people within the walls of Jerusalem, starving, turning to find food in horrific ways. And ultimately what happens is after 18 months, the, city, the, the, the walls fall down, uh, the army rushes into Jerusalem to kill who's ever left or to, to, to conquer, and King Zedekiah escapes out the back door. 
He takes his wives, his kids, his friends, his comrades, and in the middle of the night, they escape. And as Nebuchadnezzar's army rushes into the city, he gets word that the king and his, his cohort has escaped. And so they chase him down to the plains of Jericho, uh, and everyone flees, but only a small group of people are left around King Zedekiah. And they capture him, and they bring him to King Nebuchadnezzar. And King Nebuchadnezzar says, um, why? Why did, you, why did you betray me? You said you were going to kind of give me taxes and follow me, but why did you rise up against me? And Zedekiah just has no, no answer. I, I thought you were going to lose. Um, and so what happens next is Nebuchadnezzar kills Zedekiah's sons in front of him and then pokes out his eyes and says, the last sight that you'll ever have in all of creation is seeing your sons killed before your eyes. Kills, kills his wives, kills his sons, puts out his eyes, and takes him as a captive to Babylon. This is what Nebuchadnezzar did to Zedekiah. But then, after Zedekiah is in chains and bronze chains being taken off, uh, some other general dude, who I can't pronounce his name, Nebuchadnezzar something, comes into the city of Jerusalem and then decides, let's have some fun. So they burn everything to the ground. They kill young men, young women, babies, ill people, people with disabilities. Um, the, the scriptures say they, they just come in and devastate the place, wipe it out, burn their cities to the ground. And they take about 4,600 people captive from the city of Jerusalem. Um, it says, after this happened, this land lay waste as a desert for 70 years. There was nothing left. They eradicated uh, everything from this part of the land. And 4,600 people, taken, Jewish people, taken away in chains who are mourning. And imagine their loss. They've lost their identity. They've lost their place of worship. They've lost many children. They've lost, I mean, this is genocide, right? They've seen it. And they've lost their, even, even their homes. They're being taken away to a new place. In comes Psalm 137. By the rivers of Babylon, we wept. And I'm just going to read the whole psalm. Listen. By the rivers of Babylon, we sat and wept when we remembered Zion. There on the poplars, we hung our harps. For there our captors asked us for songs. Our tormentors demanded songs of joy. They said, sing us one of the songs of Zion. How can we sing the songs of the Lord while in a foreign land? If I forget you, Jerusalem, may my right hand forget its skill. May my tongue cling to the roof of my mouth if I do not remember you. If I do not consider Jerusalem my highest joy. Remember, Lord, what the Edomites did. These are the kind of neighbors who are laughing at Israel as their destruction fell. Remember, Lord, what the Edomites did on the day Jerusalem fell. Tear it down, they cried. Tear it down to its foundations. O daughter Babylon, doomed to its destruction, happy are those who repay you according to what you have done. Happy are those who seize your infants and dash them against a rock. These aren't, these aren't the people who are thinking straight. These aren't people who are reflecting the heart of God. These are people who are weeping and mourning at their deep loss. 
and they're being honest and vulnerable and true. And they're saying, and this is the irony, this is the great irony of Psalm 137, how can we sing a song of Israel in a foreign land? And as they feel like they can't even begin to step in worship, they're writing a new psalm of Israel. They are praying that they cannot pray. Writing poetry about how they cannot write poetry. This is reflecting of what I'm talking about. We gotta come ragged. We've gotta come with, with our real selves straight to the heart of God wherever we're at. And that's the life of prayer. And it, and it creates in us a deep humanity. So let me paint a picture for you of the life of prayer from Psalm 137 and 138 and from where we've come from. Praising, turning our attention to worship the living God. It's not sterile, it's human, it's messy, it's frail. It's longing to get to know his ways. It's needy and confessing. It's patient in the darkness, aware of what you need delivering from. Sometimes it's joyful. It's not always protecting itself from the blows of the world. Wailing and crying and strength and sorrow. I'll, I'll say this. Um, if we move from arrogant and entitled praying into something new, not Santa Claus prayer, into something real and new, um, it involves the, the possibility, the meaningful possibility that God could abandon us. You open your heart to that potential. God could abandon me. I'm not entitled to him blessing me. He could abandon me. But it becomes this deep awareness. It turns in this, this being willing to let go of being in control. It turns into this deep awareness that although God could abandon me, he's still there. Terminal illness, he's still there. You've lost your cool, flailed around a little bit, made a bit of a fool of yourself. God hasn't flinched. He's washing your feet. This kind of praying, this kind of way of clinging on to God does not lose faith when we don't get, when we don't get what we want. It doesn't lose faith when we see the righteous suffer. We, we pray lots and lots of shallow prayers. I mean, our prayers are shallow. And we're not convinced that we're some sort of great prayer warrior. Our prayers are shallow, but time and time again, we're bringing our heart wherever it's at to God. And every once in a while, out comes a, a treasure, a gem of a prayer. Uh, we're not trying to be anything other than where we're at. We've learned humility and hope and just how much we need him. We understand in the end just how interconnected with God we are. When he's gone or we sense his absence, there is actually a hole left. Uh, we, we learn what to do with that. Um, and we step into what some writers call a second naivete. We're not children anymore. We're not foolish as to what reality is like. But we come through despair and questions and we enter into another land, a whole new space, which feels once again like I can trust in God. It's a second, a second child, child likeness. Um, one, one author put it like this. We need the Psalms, and we need, we need to pray like the Psalms because we need to link the past to what we know of God and who his character is 
to our present day, remembering that his love is going to last forever. Um, especially when it seems like the tide of our life is running in the wrong direction, when things seem lost and everything's going wrong. We need to have this confidence, this deep confidence. And how did the Israelites do it? They wrote these prayers. How did they keep their faith after a hundred years of oppression and living in a foreign land? They had these psalms which linked them deeply to their hope, to their hopes. Um, I'm going to read one more quotation here about this. It's like, it's like being caught in the crack of time. We are called then, says this author, to stretch out the arms of our minds and hearts and to find ourselves Christ-shaped, cross-shaped at the intersection of the past, present, and future of God's time and our own time. It, this place is a place of intense pain and intense joy, the sort that perhaps only, amuse, only music and poetry can express or embody. The Psalms are a gift that help us not only think wisely about the overlapses and paradoxes of time, but to live within them, to reach out in the day of trouble and remind ourselves, and not only ourselves, but also the mysterious one whom the Psalms call um, the you of the story, in which we are called to live joyfully and painfully in the story that is his and ours, and that our time is in his hands. Now, as we go forward here, we are going to get into some of the things, the other obstacles of prayer. Um, and I'm going to teach you a bit of an outline of how to hold yourself in the life of prayer. It's not just asking God for things. It's not just Santa Claus. Um, we address him, we praise and adore him, we, we show, express our abandonment to him, we, we, we give our needs, we offer our repentance, we nestle into his presence. I'm going to teach us this, and I tell you, if you stick with this, if you stick with this life of praying in two months, three months, six months, um, something will awaken in you in a deeper way. Um, but also come out on Wednesday nights at 7.39, there's a group of people praying every Wednesday here in the church, everyone's welcome. Um, it's, a, it's a beautiful time to, to learn this kind of human praying. Um, we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna jump into a lot on Wednesday nights as well. Uh, but if, if there's any action point that I want to invite you to at this, this juncture, it's to start praying, or pray if you already do. Um, I'm going to get into some questions coming up. I don't need prayer. I've evolved is kind of a question we can feel. It's going to be a while. <laughs> no, stay there. Stay there. <laughs> I haven't reached the denouement. <laughs> uh, the questions, I don't need prayer. I've evolved beyond that. Or does God answer prayers anyway? Or does he even see me or want to meet with me? Does the world really change with prayer? Uh, my, my, we'll, we'll get into all of this stuff. Um, but my challenge to you is start praying. Start finding ways to get it out. Get the grief out. Get the confusion out. Get the joy out. Because if this stuff gets pent up too long, it's got to get out somehow. And the best way of doing that is through praying. Now, I wanted to give just a little bit of a, of a follow-up to the Israelites' story. Now, here they are in Babylon trying to build a new life. And here's the letter from Jeremiah. 
the prophet, he sends them a letter from Israel into Babylon. Those who have remained, those who are still alive and figuring out what in the world do we do with what we have left. And here's the promise. My eyes, says the Lord, will watch over them for good. And I will bring them back to this land. I will build them up and not tear them down. I will plant them and not uproot them. I will give them a heart to know me, that I am the Lord. They will be my people and I will be their God. For they will return to me with all their heart. And right, out, right before this, it's the great, great promise from Jeremiah. Um, my plans for them are to prosper. I won't, I won't let them fall. And this is the context in which God is promising. There's been a destruction, a disaster, but there w- it will be rebuilt. And we come to one of the people taken away on that train from, from Israel to Babylon was a little boy named Daniel. We all know Daniel, Daniel in the lion's den. If, if you've read the Old Testament, if you've been to Sunday school, um, God's saving Daniel from the lions. This little boy who comes into Babylon and lives there and tries to make a life and figure out, he grows up and he becomes, he becomes a great uh, administrator in the Babylonian culture and society. And he's one of the greatest prayers in all of that time. And, and I'll finish with his prayer here uh, before I invite you to the table. Um, Praise be to the name of God forever and ever. Wisdom and power are his. He changes times and seasons. He poses kings and dis- he deposes kings and raises up others. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to the discerning. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what lies in darkness and light dwells within him. So friends, I expect that this has stirred up something um, in you today. Um, these, when we open our eyes to these portions of scripture, you can't not touch something. Um, and I'm not sure what it's touched in you today, but I do know that, um, that Daniel's great promise is the promise for all of us, that as we live our lives, perhaps seemingly in the dark, um, that in him are mysteries and hidden things but in him is also light, and he will light our paths. So whatever it is, I invite you to bring your questions, your anger, your concerns, your prayer, your joy, whatever it is, up to the table today as we once again take a piece of bread and dip it in the juice and take in Jesus' symbolic body and blood once again and press into that hope that even if things seem dark, that God will find a way to build us back. So the table is set and everyone's welcome.